1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. I woke up to a beautiful Friday fall morning here in (laughs) Richmond, Virginia, and then kickoff happened. The U.S. was played off the pitch by a Japan team that was head and shoulders better on the day. Here with me to break down the USA's 2-0 loss to Japan are two good friends. Up first, a man who watched his national team play excellent football while his adopted World Cup national team did the opposite. It's Graham Rothman. Hi, Graham.
2: Hi Taylor, I think it must be an unwritten rule that Scotland and the US, there's some sort of gravitational pull there that the two teams can't ever play well at the same time, so it seemed to be earlier in the year, the US was playing well and Scotland was not playing well and now we are playing well again and the US have this sort of performance. But everyone just breathe and remember that Nike is the real enemy here for creating those kits and yes. those, those kits. Yes. Maybe that's yes. the real reason. Maybe that's what we've stumbled upon it. That is the root of the issue here.
3: People Graham, said they would look better with the numbers. They do not. They do not, in fact, look <laughs> yeah, better they,
2: with the numbers. Yeah, that's actually they don't the look thing, thing I'm most a, bent
3: out of shape about out of this whole game is how bad the kits looked on TV. It did not improve
2: things. Yeah, and they don't look better with a two-two-zero uh, scoreline either. I actually quite <laughs> like. Did anyone see the warm-up kits with yeah. the kind of the blo- The splotchy, mm-hmm. the splotchy paint? Nice. I, I quite like that.
1: Yeah, I might buy that. Graham, I appreciate your willingness to put criticism where it belongs with our corporate overlords. (laughs) I also appreciate the innovative approach to solving the issues that we saw today. That is what we're going to try to do on this episode. Uh, Look at what the U.S. did wrong, what Japan did right, and then try to maybe find some solutions. It sounds like one of them is we're going to schedule friendlies for Scotland uh, on match days of the World Cup for the United States. And that way, Scotland, will just tell them to play really poorly. That will make the U.S. play well. Is that what we've landed upon?
2: Yeah, but what? Well, if it works that way, yeah. If that's if you can manipulate the gravitational pull to benefit the US, but what if it does the opposite effect? What well, if Scotland is playing well and the US is 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 uh, playing poorly? No, we're paying them deal. to play poorly, Graham. That, that's oh, the right. Way. Okay, we're like, bribery, don't worry. Okay, don't right,
1: right, don't worry about it. Don't chase. Well, don't press. All good. Yeah,
2: I mean, I th- by the looks of it, you, the US were over after uh, Octoberfest. I think that's what <laughs> Ooh, that's what hey, happened oh, yesterday.
1: I mean, you never know. Stranger things have happened. Uh, rounding out today's crew is a man who got to see Gio Reyna play for the USA and is therefore, I'm assuming, at least 20% happier than the rest of
3: the fan base. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. <laughs> Gio Reyna was kind of good for stretches of that first half. Yes, we were was. talking about players off mic before we started who were good, and I didn't mention Gio Reyna then, but you sang it right now. He had some really nice moments in this game. Taylor, I've been up since 5am my time. I've been mainlining the U.S. Men's National Team right into my veins ever since then. I'm wired. I have the oh, energy dear. of those three USM fans that were in the stands in Dusseldorf I mean we let's go let's do this thing it's time to talk soccer this was a bad game but I'm ready it is time to talk
1: soccer and yet I still have one more question for you Joe I'm I'm prepared to be annoyed by your answer already I know you're not a big coffee guy I know you're morally opposed to tea Are you this amped (laughs) up, despite that early hour, just on, like, love of the game alone? Please tell me you have
3: some sort of caffeine in your system. I I don't have any caffeine in my system, and I really wasn't that amped amped up watching the game. (laughs) It is this discussion, like, actually just doing the podcast. This is what's getting me going. I haven't talked to, like, anyone so far today. I've just been silent staring at my computer screen. So
2: this is some good interaction for me. and three little bottles of five-hour energy as well. <laughs> right, but other, than that, no Joe's, right, other than that, no caffeine. Joe is ready to go. I mean, he's going to punctuate his sentences with parkour <laughs> at, at later in this uh, this episode. I have 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 done really don't know why
1: supportive. I'm so wired. <laughs> Yeah, it would have been strange if Joe had been like, no, no caffeine, just several bottles of five hour and a teeny bit of meth. Then we would have had some problems. (laughs) I'm glad you did not go that approach. Um, That's all. Maybe that's what the United States could have used. wasn't prepared to advocate for methamphetamine usage for the United States. But here we are. Uh, Let's talk about our opening thoughts. We are going to get into what we think went wrong, what we think can be improved upon or how things can be fixed. But first off, Joe. Let's just start with your opening thoughts, your initial reaction to that loss. I'm guessing not particularly positive, though knowing you, I'm going to guess also not particularly negative either.
3: Yeah, it wasn't a good game, right? This was a very, very poor performance from the U.S. men's national team. There were individual mistakes. There were some team-wide tactical issues, both in attack and defense, that stuck out to me in this game. They didn't play well. Japan bossed them from pretty much the opening whistle. The U.S. had a few nice moments that we'll talk about later on. But this is troubling. Things I am encouraged by, however, no injuries, right? The field looked awful. Brendan Aronson got absolutely destroyed moment after moment in this game. And it seems like the U.S. got off injury-free, which is a a huge priority coming into this camp. I think a lot of the things in this game that went wrong, at least a, a chunk of them, maybe not the majority, but at least a good chunk of them, can be fixed by just literally players playing better. And we can get to more of that later on. But yeah, a a troubling game, a troubling performance. It's difficult, I think, at times to take too much away from friendlies like this. But still, this is not the game you want to see from the US when they're now, at this point, 90 minutes away from the World Cup. I'm not convinced the sky is falling like Twitter is. But still, lots of stuff to complain about, that's for sure.
2: Yeah, so so first of all, I would say, right at the top of the show, this was bad, right? Whichever way we kind of talk about this, we break this down. This was a bad performance by the US. And because I think we're going to go into some of those problems and this could get quite depressing quite quickly, I'm going to start off by looking at some of the the qualifications and caveats. So on the bright side, I said earlier in the week that I thought US soccer had done a decent job of picking opponents for these two friendlies and particularly Japan because they're a team that would test the weaknesses in this American side. And obviously that's what they did pretty brutally at times. But these tune-up games aren't about winning; they're about getting getting a better understanding of your team. And Berhalter surely learned some stuff from from watching this match. In fact, from the changes he made at half time, I personally thought that this- there was a period in the second half which was a lot better. And it didn't translate into opportunities and goal scoring chances for the US. But nonetheless, they had some control. And I thought those changes that were made at halftime kind of demonstrated an understanding of what the problems were in the first half. And there were a lot of problems in the first half. So I would say Baraltas set up his team incorrectly. The balance of the team was wrong in the first half. The second half, more encouraging. Not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but, as I say, encouraging. And he he needs to come up with some solutions now. That's the difficult part, because the US can't afford to suffer the problems they had in the first half so acutely anyway at the, at the World Cup. But there is a scenario where the US end up thankful that this happened before the tournament mm-hmm. and not during the tournament. The other thing I would say is, Joe, you, you kind of quickly referenced it there um, in terms of friendly matches are friendly matches, Right. Obviously, we would have rather this had gone better. The US had played well. They'd won this match. You build confidence from that. That's the better scenario. But friendly matches before a tournament don't always tell you how a team is going to play at that tournament. And here's an example. Before the 2002 World Cup, which obviously we know the US did well in, they lost 2-0 to a Dutch team that failed to qualify for that tournament. Berhalter actually played in that match. I went back and and looked at some of the statistics and some of the highlights from that game, and it was not good at all for the US. It was a bit of a disaster. I also found some headlines that I I think, will be similar to what we will see after this game, which is we're kind of panicky. And their very next game, less than two weeks later, they, they beat Portugal at the World Cup. So I understand why fans are unhappy about this. It is concerning. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to gloss that over. There are problems that Baraltar needs to fix. 100%. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the World Cup is going to be a bad one.
1: Yeah, and I think to, to to bring it home, at least in the opening remarks, I think you all have done a good job of essentially painting a picture of a team that did not play well. I think individually as a unit, I think from the tactics, from the coaching as well. and And so I think this is a game where if you had negative feelings about a player or about an approach – it is very easy to double down on those negative feelings. If you think yeah. Weston McKinney isn't good on the ball, I don't think this game uh, is going to dissuade you of that notion. If you're not sure if Luca De La Torre is up to the level or if Ferreira can score goals or if Karim Pulisic is too fragile and can't play games, like all of those things kind of get emphasized in this game, but I think then reaching hard and firm conclusions Not necessarily fair either. I think there may be a few that we can come to after this result. But overall, I think it is much better to look at what we can actually learn and what can actually be proved upon. Because ultimately, Joe, I think a huge part of this is just the players weren't up for it. That in and of itself is a problem. But that lack of fight, that lack of spirit is a thing that you have to believe when the World Cup rolls around will very much be there. I would say slightly worrying that Japan, very much up for this one. You could see that spirit from the jump. Let's take a moment to talk about the opponents, the uh, victorious Japanese team. Because, Joe, this was a team that we all, I think, in watching them in previewing this game, felt like we're going to be better than people expected. We're going to be difficult to play. I did not expect them to be this difficult or this good in this game.
3: They were phenomenal, right? Japan was absolutely phenomenal in this game. They played out of more of a four-four-two, four-two-three-one shape than, than sort of what I'd expected in that four-three-three, based off of what we talked about earlier this week. But they were so quick on the ball when they had possession, which wasn't a ton to be honest in this game. The U.S. had fifty-seven percent; Japan had forty-three percent of the ball. When Japan did have the ball, though, they were ping, ping, ping. They were passing the ball around very, very quickly. Quick touches, one and two touch passing. To be able to advance and play through the U.S.'s press, and that's really where their second goal comes from, the one that ices this game very late in the second half. They just beat the U.S.'s press. The U.S. is stretched. They're not in a great defensive structure. Japan exposed them, get down the sideline, and put the ball in the back of the net. I mean, it was a lot of that sort of very quick aggressive attacking play when they started with the ball and then in moments where the U.S. lost possession which was a ton in this game Japan would win the ball and go right down their throats and that's where the first goal comes from. It's Kamada in the 25th minute it's Weston McKinney turning the ball over in midfield Japan attack quickly find Kamada on the left side of the box and he scores and it's 1-0 in the first half. It was those kinds of moments over and over and over again if not for Matt Turner in this game it very much could have been a more lopsided scoreline which again is troubling for the U.S. men's national team but Japan were excellent in pretty much every phase the U.S. made them look better probably than they were but even if the U.S. had played a little cleaner on the ball had been a little cleaner in possession Japan I, I still think would have looked really really good in this match I was surprised
1: by how the intensity of Japan's game. And I mean that from the physical side. Uh, Charlie Boehm had the graphic that I think they had like 13 fouls to the USA's two or three. They were very much stuck in and willing to get stuck in. I think a few U.S. players tried to respond as best they could to that and kind of match that physicality overall. I don't think the U.S. were able to do that. But then the way Japan were able to transition to attack, the way they really effectively transitioned to defense as well and just caused the United States problems, kept finding space, I thought it was a really dynamic, engaging, fun performance that I would have loved if they had been playing Canada or Costa Rica or Mexico. <laughs> Against the United States, I enjoyed it less. And Graham, this isn't necessarily even Japan's strongest possible team.
2: Yeah, that is a slightly concerning thing. So this this was actually a, a, a quite an experimental lineup from Japan. Um, a number of key players. I was looking forward to seeing... The the two Celtic players. So there's three Japanese Celtic players in this in this squad, and two of them you would say are competing for starting places. So they're Ryo Hitate and Kyogo Furuhashi, and it was actually the third one who you would say is lower down in the pecking order. He, he's um, that's Maeda who started started up front in that four two three one shape for Japan. So, and, and there's a, there's a really good follow on Twitter, Dan Olovitz, who, who writes for Japan Times. So as well as a following all the, the USMNT seed on Twitter, I was also mm. following what Dan was saying about this Japanese team. And he was saying that this is a side that at this point in their cycle, They're very certain of what they are as a team. Um, They almost operate as a a club squad where it doesn't matter what players are coming in. Yes, there may be a talent drop-off, but in terms of how they play and the profile of that player and that team, it doesn't really change. And the the one thing that has been an issue for this Japanese team has been... That they don't often translate their, the number of opportunities they have or the territorial advantage that they have into goals. And the longer that match went on at 1-0, Dan was tweeting about this is the ja- Japan's problem. So when that second goal came, I think that was, they, they saw this match and this friendly as a great success for them, both in terms of the result, which could have been even more emphatic for Japan, and also the performance. Not too surprising about the performance because we all watched that performance. But they are a, they are a very good team. And, and to be honest, um, to draw comparisons with Celtic, I can see why Celtic have targeted this market because Celtic very much play in this way, and they 're just they 're so intense and aggressive um, on and off the ball, and they 're smart as well. So the first yeah. fifteen minutes of this game, you had Japan really pressing high on the American defense. And obviously they were coughing up the ball. Zimmerman passes straight to a a, a Japanese player, I think in the the opening 15 minutes. Turner has to make a save. But then as that first half progresses, you found that Japan realized they didn't even need to press that high on the US defense. As long as they clogged the midfield and they were first to balls in there, it was as if they they knew that the US were already having trouble playing out from the back and they recognized they could exploit that in an even sharper and shrewder way. So... This performance has me really high on Japan going into that World Cup. They're in a difficult group. I think they're in a group with Germany and Spain. But yeah. they, if, if there's, there's always a big nation that doesn't make it through the group stages, and there's always a surprise package. I, I wouldn't put it past Japan no. to be that surprise package. I thought it was telling because uh, I did rewatch uh the all of the first
1: half and a good chunk of the second half, and I think a thing that stood out to me once the emotion was gone was how the United States did look up for the game in those first ten to fifteen minutes thereabout I think Japan still you could see the warning signs. But the U.S. were moving it much more quickly, but it, it was oftentimes a ball into the middle, then a ball out wide, then a ball kind of one, two down the line. And it was always attacking down the channels for the United States. And I think once uh, the, uh, Japan were able to basically anticipate that, be OK with cutting off half the pitch and then sort of suffocating the United States and dropping their line off a little bit, I think they knew the U.S. weren't going to try to play through the middle, weren't going to kind of catch them in those uh, like negative situations. It really meant the United States had nowhere to go other than trying to kind of hoof it down the line into 1v1 situations. You lose that aerial challenge and then Japan reestablish possession and away we go. I thought it was a really smart game plan from Japan to start and then really smart little adjustments to basically nullify everything the U.S. was doing. Uh, I thought Morita in, in the middle did a really great job of continuously stepping in front of the U.S. midfield three but staying behind that the front three of the United States to find big pockets of space, and then when Adams would try to close, it left somebody else open centrally, and and oftentimes it was Weston McKinney trying to pick between one or the other and oftentimes picking wrong, uh, and then Japan were easily uh, bypassing the U.S.'s midfield. So I felt like overall a really, really strong game plan from them, and we saw a lot of how aggressive they can be, how tactically astute they can be, but also how adaptable they can be. Joe, any other uh, words of praise for Japan before we talk about the United
3: States a little bit more? I think we've kind of hit it. Japan was awesome. I I echo a lot of what you guys have said. They're going to be a handful at the World Cup. Mm.
1: There we are. All right, let's take a quick break, then let's spend a good chunk of the rest of the show talking about the United States, from the lineup to the substitutions to the goals conceded, many other things as well. Getting into all that very soon.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone?
1: All right, Joe Lowry, let's talk about the U.S. men's national team for a moment. Let's start with that lineup. Not a ton of surprises, but I I would say a few surprises. Chief amongst them, Brendan Aronson starting on the left, or not on the left, excuse me. Brendan Aronson starting overall. We had Gio Reyna in there, but we did not have Christian Pulisic, who was out with injury. Were there any other surprises for you in this U.S. starting eleven?
3: No, I, th- I think a lot of it made sense from what Greg Bralter had said before this game and-, and from what we know of him before. So we already knew that Matt Turner, both center backs mm-hmm. were Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman and Sam Vines, were starting in this game. So we had four of an 11 possible starters. It ended up being Turner in goal, Dest at right back, Zimmerman as the right sided center back, Long on the left side of the center back pairing, Sam Vines on- at left back, and then Tyler Adams as the six, De La Torre as the right sided number eight, Weston McKenney as the left sided number eight, Brendan Aronson on the right wing. Giorena on the left wing and Jesus Ferreira as the number nine. It really was just that that very straightforward 3 four three three shape, some tactical flexibility, some players rotating into different spaces, but nothing really surprised in this game. And even with a lot of the subs, I thought it made sense in terms of getting to see specific players. Josh Sargent had the second half as the number nine. I thought that made sense. Mark McKenzie and Reggie Cannon come in basically to the back line for the second half. I thought that made sense as well. There's some other subs that we can get into later. But overall, I thought the lineup was a pretty obvious one from Greg Berhalter, and he kind of went the obvious direction outside of the Christian Pulisic injury, which I didn't know about coming into this game. I'm not sure if other folks did either. But given what was available to him, I think this lineup made sense injury quote-unquote
2: he's actually writing his book that's of course the of course
3: and they did say if this were a world cup
1: game he would have been able to play they were being cautious not sure i love that answer maybe it was some book writing he had another draft uh, to do maybe he was updating it for this game i hope that's how he's writing the book because he just keeps it going day by day uh, joe that's a diary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And publishes diary, and and we we make some money, and then he's he's all set. I think even if he's not playing, Joe. When did you start? What were like the what was the thing that started to give you the most concern early? Was there one sort of pattern of play that kept standing yeah. out to you, was or was, like was it just the whole in. thing? Yeah,
3: yeah, exactly. The pattern of play is called turnover. That that mm-hmm. is really what it is for me in this game. Yep. it really is in the first minute. It's Aaron Long. He has the ball on the left side yeah. of the back line, and he underhits a pass to Sam Vines. I watched this play like eight times, Taylor. I wanted to to echo your spirit and your sentiment here and how you watch plays over and over again. I couldn't tell at first if Sam Vines should have been closer to the ball or if it was something on Vines. And the more I watched it, it is a miscommunication. But long, number one, takes too long on the ball. And and number Mm -hmm. two, doesn't hit the ball hard enough to Sam Vines. He hits it like probably I would hit that pass, which is to say not well and not nearly hard enough. Taylor, I remember we played... Pick up with Bobby Warshaw once in Seattle before MLS Cup. And Bobby, yeah. you know, we were in between games, or whatever. And Bobby's like, Joe, hit me the ball. And I hit it to him. And he's like, no, Joe, hit me the ball. That's what yeah. it felt like, right? So I, I couldn't. I think you ended up hitting it instead. You're right. It looked like those kinds of passes from the U.S. where they were too slow. There wasn't enough pace on a lot of those moments. And I went through Taylor and clocked a bunch of the turnovers that the U.S. had in this game. The stat that was going around was 54 turnovers by the U.S. in their own half in the first half, which was the most in the Greg Borelter era. There was a bunch of those different kind of stats going on. There were uh, double-digit, I think, in the 30s, turnovers in the U.S.'s own defensive third in the first half is what they were saying on the broadcast. Turnovers were coming left and right and that was the issue from the very start of this game. It was sloppy mistakes and there's other tactical stuff that we'll talk but I mean it was sloppy mistakes over and over and over again that in terms of troubling signs worried me and it also to be fair to the U.S. They did have some good moments early on in this game. There was good intensity, Taylor. You mentioned that. Japan was capitalizing on some of those turnovers, but the U.S. had maybe two or three nice bits of ball progression in the yep. first half, and the best chance of their entire game came from a nice bit of progression where Gio Reina finds Sergio Dest with a nice cross-field ball. Dest crosses the ball into the box. Jesus Ferreira has a nice look on goal. Paul Carr had that XG on that shot at about thirty-three. so .33, excuse me, and, and Ferreira heads it over the bar. That was a nice moment. I mean, the ball didn't find the back of the net, and you want to see that especially from Jesus Ferreira. But there were some good signs early on. Just the turnovers eventually won that battle between the good stuff and the bad stuff. And the turnovers and some of the poor spacing that the U.S. had, that really killed them
2: in this game. Even that chance, though, just it, it confirmed to me seven minutes in that this was going to be one of those games because obviously... The easy talking point with that Ferreira chance is Jordan Pfock would score that, and obviously that is maybe a little bit lazy because maybe Jordan Pfock isn't in that position. But nonetheless, just seven minutes in, between that that turnover in the first minute and how difficult the US was finding it to play out from the back, and then that missed opportunity, you did kind of get a sense early on that this was this was not going to be a great day for the USMNT.
1: Joe or Graham. Uh, Graham, I've thrown to Joe twice. Let's stick with you for a second, because I'd love to hear your thoughts on those turnovers. Uh, Joe, I think the important number there, not even just the sheer number, the 54 turnovers in that first half, but also where they occurred. You expect there to be turnovers in the opposition half because you're trying to create, you're rolling the dice, you're playing a through ball, maybe it doesn't come off, so be it. But when you're giving the ball away that much in your own half, it speaks to, I think, a lot of what the defense is doing to cause problems, but also maybe a lack of confidence or your own inability to execute plays. Graham, do you have thoughts on was it an individual thing? Was it a like a
2: tactical thing for the United States? Why do you think they struggled so much with retaining possession? Um, I think it was... This might not make much sense, but a large part of it was an individual thing on a collective basis, if that yeah, makes any no, sense. So the does, midfield... the the and the midfield in the first half of this match was, frankly, atrocious. I thought it was very bad. Um, And some of that was down to the problems the defence was experiencing playing out from the back. And obviously Zimmerman and Long are going to face some heat and already have faced some heat for some of the mistakes made there. And they should. And they should the midfield right? was having... Say that again, Joe? They should, right? They should face some of that heat. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Justifiably so. But these things are never down to or rarely down to just one factor, you know? And I think that the midfield was having its its own issues. So touches were heavy. This is what I mean when it comes down to individuals, um, but the collective side of it was that it was kind of everyone in that midfield. So touches were heavy. There didn't seem to be many options whenever Adams or McKinney in particular received the ball. McKenney's play for one of the, the first goal yeah. is hardly ideal. And the US were just generally being outnumbered in the center of the pitch. The tactical side of it is that using Adams in that double pivot when he had the the Japanese four, sometimes it was four players in the centre of that pitch because they were pushing the the fullbacks up high to provide the width. Four players on Tyler Adams at times makes his job very difficult. And I do wonder, for the start of the second half, what happened was one of the changes that Browter made was... You had a base, a defensive base of three in possession, so that obviously makes it more difficult to close them down at the back. You're going from two to three, and even if Japan have three players pressing, it's easier for the US to play, play it from the back. But you also have De La Torre, to my eye anyway, gets dropped a little bit deeper to Tyler Adams to have a, a flat midfield too, so that he's got a little bit more help. There were also some more tactical adjustments, and I know I'm changing the subject slightly, but I thought in the first half, a lack of vertical threat for the US was, yes. a, was, was yeah. a real problem. So for the start of the second half, you have Sam Vines getting pushed right up the left side, almost to the to the point of playing as a left winger. So that just stretches the pitch. And then you have Jordan Morris coming on to play on the right side. That's one of my takeaways from this game, actually. One thing I thought we learned was, or some at least something that was confirmed, because I think we probably kind of knew this already. But I don't think you can play Jesus Ferreira as, as the nine without a vertical threat either side of him so if it's Timothy Weir he gives you that vertical threat but obviously he's out at the moment Pulisic can give you that threat but he doesn't start this match so it's Aronson and and Reyna who start this match and and they aren't the same sort of players I wouldn't say that they're vertical threats and we've often spoken about Ferreira's ability to create space and obviously he does that but he also needs teammates to create space for him and having the lack of that vertical threat for the US just made it far too easy for Japan to pinch the pitch and make things congested in the yep. middle. And with their intensity, the way they were closing down and the US's ability in midfield to hold onto that ball and find passing channels, it was just a bit of a nightmare for the US. But the changes for the second half, I thought, did improve things slightly, but Barata's going to have to think about that one a little bit. Graham, I love so much of that. I love so much of what you
3: said there. I totally agree. I have, Taylor, to sort of piggyback, I guess, on Graham, I have three reasons why I think the U.S. struggled so much in build up and, and kind of in possession in general in the first half. The first reason is those dumb mistakes, the sloppy turnovers. McKenney is a good example of that on Japan's opening goal. Aaron Long probably doesn't need to play him that pass and then McKenney kind of makes a meal out of it for Japan anyway. So there, there is some blame to go around there, but McKenney should do better there and needs to do better in the, with the ball in that spot. That's one. The, the second thing, to go off of what Graham's talking about here, is there was very, very little movement in behind. You could go minutes on end in this game with the U.S. with the ball without seeing anyone run in behind. And that is a, just a huge problem in this game. There was very little idea... To, to actually turn and face forward and, and exploit the space in behind Japan's back line because they were pressing high. The space wasn't in the U.S.'s own half. Not to say that you can't try to build through that pressure on occasion. That's fine. Greg Barleter likes to do that stuff. We know that. But the space was really there for the taking in behind Japan. And I didn't notice the U.S. actively trying to exploit that really until Josh Sargent came on in the second half. And I thought he had a couple of nice moments of trying to help the U.S. break in behind instead of just playing into that pressure. So that's, that's one thing. And another sort of part of that, I guess that's, that's 2A for 2B, is that when the U.S. did play long and they tried to do that a few times here and there, maybe a little more actively in the second half, there was so much space between the U.S.'s front line and between the midfield because the midfield was set up to play through the pressure. They were trying to help the U.S. build. I assume that's what they were instructed to do. But then when the U.S. plays long into Jesus Herrera or Gio Reyna or Brendan Aronson, none of those three guys are targets really in the first place. The U.S. couldn't win the second ball because their central midfielders had to sprint 30 yards forward, 15, 20, 30 yards forward to come in and collect the second ball. And Japan already had numbers around the ball. So the U.S. couldn't play long. They didn't really try to exploit space in behind. When they did, they couldn't play long. They were sloppy on the ball. And the third thing is that the spacing was off, right? We kind of talked about that, that Walker Zimmerman turnover that I believe it's to Kubo, and, and Kubo drives forward, and it's a couple of moments later, and Japan have a shot on goal. And Matt Turner makes the save in the, what is that, 13th minute, I believe? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's Aaron Long, excuse me, with that pass. Shoot, no, it is. It is Walker Zimmerman. Either way, it's Zimmerman. the U.S. Yep. In that in that moment Luca De La Torre is trying to, to step into the right-back spot. So he's shifting from the right-sided central midfield spot into really providing width, with Serginho Des pushing up the right side. That's a pretty common rotation. You see that from a lot of teams in the world. These players know how to execute that rotation. De La Torre starts to go wide, but he doesn't actually step and get his boots on the chalk. He's not wide enough to really take Kubo away from the play. And so as Zimmerman is on the ball, he doesn't have De La Torre as a wide option because De La Torre hasn't really made himself available. And because he's not all the way wide, he's clogging the passing lane into Aaron Long, into Brendan Aronson. Excuse me. So Zimmerman plays that ball, Kubo, who, who De La Torre should be taking out of the play, takes like one half step into midfield, steps in, wins the ball, and two seconds later, Japan have the ball flying towards Matt Turner and he makes a save those types of of those moments of poor spacing in possession mixed with the issues playing long or not trying to play long enough mixed with the sloppy turnovers on the ball i mean that that for me is so much of why the us really struggled to create anything in this game against japan
1: aren't we sort of describing very basic issues though i mean the these feel like issues of a team that is in preseason or hasn't had many reps together International soccer being as it is, there haven't been a ton of reps between Zimmerman and Godova and whomever else in the middle. But still, those are the type of mistakes that have me feeling like I don't know who's to blame because it sounds like everyone is to blame. And that makes it harder for me to feel like there are positive things we can learn from this.
3: It is. It's frustrating. Right, Taylor? And I'm not trying to I I guess with my opening comments, too, I'm not trying to say people shouldn't be frustrated. This was a terrible Mm -hmm. game from the U.S. men's national team. They played very poorly. I think sort of my feeling coming out of this is that none of these things are impossible to fix. Yeah. Right? We've seen the U.S. play well before. This game just happened to be the one that felt like, remember that 3-0 loss to Mexico? I think up in, up in New Jersey, right, is where that game was? I don't remember where it was. But either way, that, that brutal game where the U.S. is so married to playing out of the back, that kind of felt a little bit like this game. And Greg Baralter used that as, a, as almost a training exercise. And this game had, had shades of that. It had moments where you think, wow, the US could have tweaked this one thing and this could have been so much of a more effective performance. If the US turns the ball over half as much or even a third as much, they're going to break into the attacking half a little bit more. If they nail those, the, the, fixing these spacing issues is like a five minute film session, or at least it could be. Maybe it should be. Yeah. I feel like a lot of these things are very straightforward to fix. They need to be fixed, don't get me wrong but i feel like they should be fixed they should be fixable and hopefully we'll see if that happens going into saudi arabia on tuesday i think that's that's a
1: good way to frame it joe because looking at it again and seeing it as, as Graham said, it's a lot of individual mistakes that lead to a lot of team mistakes. Uh, I, I think there is a, a quicksand aspect to this one. This is a thing we talk about a lot. It comes from the wonderful, from the replacements. But a quicksand game is when you keep making little mistakes and suddenly it's impossible to get out of it. You keep making those mistakes. You keep having those issues. Uh, and like one example of that would be, as you mentioned, Aaron Long in the very beginning. Like Maybe that first touch isn't very good. And maybe that's because the field itself is not very good there's been a lot uh, discussed about the quality of the pitch but that's the thing where after that first ball bounces up on you you recognize okay it's going to be unpredictable i've got to be just that much more secure in the way i'm receiving the ball in the way i'm playing and i don't think any player necessarily really factored that into their game and so it just becomes this sort of Uh, breakdown across the board, and I equate it to, like at amateur level, obviously, but I've played on teams where it just becomes that big temptation of, oh, we've got to really fast forward, they're playing a high line, we're just going to boot it long. And that starts to not work, and I have been that player to be like, guys, the long ball isn't working, we got to play simple. And I receive the ball and pick my head up and think, well, he is kind of open. And then I ping that long ball in, and suddenly you're pulled into it. It seemed like the U.S., just kept getting pulled into each other's sort of poor performances. And that's what makes it a collectively poor performance. This is where I would say there were two things that, that I found extra frustrating on top. I think number one was Greg Berhalter's managerial approach. And I understand what he was going for. I think the idea in this first half was I've given them the game plan. I've given them the instructions. Now I want to see who can figure it out. I want to see who in game can read what's happening diagnose the problems and make the adjustments either to the team game or to their own individual game to, to make that difference. And I understand why you want that ahead of the world cup. I would argue, though, that you could just as effectively use this as an opportunity for you, the manager, to show your ability to uh, make adjustments before halftime in that first half to, to kind of coach the team to get back into the form they need to be in. And I do feel like he was so focused on letting the team figure it out and seeing who could figure it out that he removed his ability to impact the game a little bit there. I also think that speaks to a lack of veteran leadership and veteran play, because I I think if you have players who've been there before, who've had those bad games, who can pick that team up, you have that person that is just going to be a rallying point. And with the United States, sometimes that's Weston McKinney, sometimes that's Tyler Adams, sometimes it's Walker Zimmerman. On a day when I thought Tyler Adams was asked to do a lot, and I thought this was a fairly flat performance from him, Still saw some good defensive work on his part, but overall, I think not particularly great. I would say the same for Zimmerman. And for Weston McKinney, this is maybe the worst I can remember him playing in a U.S. jersey. I really do think that first goal is almost entirely him. And for a team that's trying to build out and play through the middle, for him to just hit this like errant lateral pass, to me says, not only is he not trying to play or take the ball at the at the opposition, he's content to just knock it wide and then recycle. And even there, he doesn't do it as clinically as he should have. So that's sort of my broad strokes take on uh, what wasn't necessarily working. Graham, any thoughts on any of that? Am I being too harsh? Am I being not harsh enough? How say you?
2: No, I think that's that's fair. We've already established this was that this was a bad match. Yeah. So there's not really a level of, of criticism unless you're calling for Berhalter to be sacked or something like that. I think that would be a bit extreme at this point, but I think any degree of criticism is is, is fair of this performance. I think the the lack of intensity from the start was confusing Um, and that's one of the one of those things where I don't know if there's a tangible answer of how you instill intensity in a team I think that's down to man management and the environment that you create on on the training pitch so that's not really something that we as outsiders can analyze or suggest how, I mean, I don't really have any suggestions on how you create that intensity other than tell players to be sharp from the the first minute, but actually getting that performance from them is a different thing. And you contrast that to Japan, who were very intense from the start, very sharp. Kind of, they looked like the team, both teams obviously here preparing for a World Cup, but there was only one team there that looked to be preparing for a World Cup. my, My mind goes back to, and um, before the 2018 world cup scotland did this this tour of central america and and they played mexico at the azteca and we mexico were preparing for a world cup and scotland weren't scotland were basically on their holidays at that point and we got destroyed by mexico they're obviously a better team than us but a big part of it was just down to we weren't at it that day that's the confusing thing about this american performance or one of the confusing things is that why weren't america at it today why weren't the usmt at it today um, so Yeah, I think that's something I I thought coming into these two games, I thought you wanted the more complete performance to be against Japan and then the slightly more experimental one to be against Saudi Arabia. I think now maybe you have to flip it. You do want to see a response against Saudi Arabia. I think if you have another performance where the same mistakes and the same flaws are in the performance against Saudi Arabia as, as the performance against Japan, that's maybe the point I start to get really concerned that close to World Cup. But if the US go into that game and they're much better, more intense from the start, higher tempo, they fix a lot of the problems, there's a vertical threat, then I would say, okay, well, that's probably a good thing. They've had that experience against Japan, but it really does depend on what happens on Tuesday now, I think.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a fair point. This is the type of game, bad as it was, that if you have a solid result against Saudi Arabia and then you start off with a good game in the World Cup, I think this game is very much forgotten or just seen as, as an outlier. If the Saudi game goes poorly and then the U.S. starts poorly in the World Cup, maybe less of an outlier. Let's talk about some more individuals, both positive and negative, uh, in just a second. First, let's take one more break. Back soon. Welcome back. Now it's time to talk individuals. We've got some players who help their case, some by not being involved in this game. I feel like we've got far more who maybe didn't help their case so much. So let's start there, Joe. Who are some players or who is a player uh, who's the chief player maybe who did not help their case today?
3: I think all of the center backs fall into this category. The one that I think put yeah. himself in the worst position, weirdly, is not Aaron Long or Walker Zimmerman. It's Mark McKenzie. Yep. I thought mm-hmm. Mark McKenzie coming on in the second half for Aaron Long, he plays the second 45 minutes. I thought he was pretty brutal out there to be entirely honest 65th minute he has a turnover that that I believe it was Zimmerman was yelling at him to play it back to Matt Turner now it wouldn't have been the easiest pass in the world the ball wasn't really resting on the ground for him to hit it but he doesn't end up playing that pass he just sort of stands around and, and tries to protect the ball he doesn't do that and a few seconds later Japan have a shot on goal it's that moment and then it's another few minutes later this one's in the 70th minute he steps into midfield to try and win the ball he can't. He, he jumps up to try to head it. He can't propel the ball forward. And again, a few seconds later, Japan have a shot. So Matt Turner being tested multiple times because of, of Mark McKenzie out there and some of the decisions he made, I thought he was rough. And to, to stay with one other sub, Johnny Cardoso I thought was rough too. I didn't have a ton of high expectations for Cardoso or McKenzie in this game. I'm not... ...a massive fan of either one of their games. Cardoso's playing in the double pivot. He comes on for Luca De La Torre after the, the tactical changes that Graham ran through earlier... ...where the U.S. shifts to the back three in the double pivot. Cardoso's playing on the left side of the double pivot. And he, he's just not mobile enough defensively, or he wasn't to keep up in this game. He gets cut right past in the 72nd minute. And then he's not clean enough on the ball, I think, to really make up for his defensive deficiencies. He just straight up doesn't check his shoulder in the 78th minute. And no surprise, somebody comes right down his back, wins the ball, and starts going forward you just can't really have those moments right in, in games like this you can't have those moments heading into the world cup when you're this far on the fringes when you when with both mckenzie yeah. and cardoso you weren't ever really going to be called up to this camp in the first place but the door was open for you as a result of injuries to other people, Eunice Musa in one case for Cardoso, and then a couple of center backs in, in Mark McKenzie's case. The door was cracked open, and I, I kind of feel like with how they played in the second half, they both cracked the door, or they, they both pushed the, the cracked door shut back into the door frame. There's other players yeah. that I don't think played well. Like, like we mentioned, Weston McKinney, I don't think Tyler Adams was good in this game either. Luca De La Torre, I thought was, eh, I, I don't think he was all that great on the whole. He had a couple of nice moments, as did McKinney and Adams, but but by and large, wasn't exceptional and the same kind of goes for almost every U.S. outfield player but those two in particular Cardoso and McKenzie I thought may have played their way out of World Cup contention today
2: yeah I I had some sympathy for Cardoso because I'm not sure well I didn't really know what his role was meant to be in in that team and he played like he maybe didn't have a great understanding which perhaps isn't um it perhaps isn't surprising given that he hasn't he's not been in this team or even that he's not been in a camp for a while so it's a it's an unusual environment for him another sub in the second half um, Malik Tillman I didn't think I thought he didn't really get involved and he's another player who is on thin ice and that he needs to make the the very most of these opportunities so I think another um even just not even a poor performance against Saudi Arabia if he gets another performance even just a I could have a, kind of, a, a A mediocre performance, I think, would probably knock him out of contention as well. Um, It is a long list of players that I thought didn't really play well. I thought Walker Zimmerman was poor, but there's a core of players that at this point you're not going to drop them out of your roster. So McKenny, Adams, Zimmerman, all those guys are safe for for Qatar, but they were were poor in this match. Aaron Long, um, his first half performance... What I would say is it didn't lock down that position for me. I think everyone wanted Aaron Long to come in. There's a chemistry there with Walker Zimmerman and with Matt uh, Turner behind them, and I didn't really see that. So that is a question mark ahead of the World Cup and ahead of that Saudi Arabia game. Um, and Delatore, Joe, you already mentioned. I thought he was. I thought he was a problem in midfield in the first half. At least he got amends. Yeah. He got an opportunity to make amends somewhat in the second half, um, where he was playing a little bit deeper. But he looks, he looked very much off the pace in that first half. And I just wonder if he's, if he's really suffering from not playing much for Celta Vigo this season and whether going up against that intensity of Japanese attack was, was just a, was a shock to him.
3: I like I, I like De La Torre in that deeper role that we saw Graham. I thought one of the one of the most interesting questions coming into this camp was how the U.S. would replace Yunus Musa, and we kind of got an idea of it. Right, it got lost in the shuffle of how bad this game was for the U.S. Regardless of how impactful you think that is going forward and what this performance means, but either way. De La Torre is the Musa replacement. That's what we learned, right? He started as the number eight, which is where conceivably Musa would have started against Japan in this game. And then when Berhalter went back to that three at the back shape with Reggie Cannon as the hybrid right center back, right back, it was De La Torre playing the Musa role next to Tyler Adams. So that is an interesting data point that we can draw from going forward. Now, whether Luca De La Torre played himself down the depth chart a little bit is a separate interesting question. I kind of doubt it, given that the U.S. doesn't have a ton of other great options in that space, but it was interesting to see De La Torre eat up those. Minutes that I think Musa would have had otherwise. Um, I agree
1: with everything that's been said, uh, especially Joe, your initial point about Mark McKenzie. It reminds me of what we talked about with Sergio Dest uh, this past weekend review when he comes on from Milan at halftime with uh, Quartz Scalia already having drawn two yellow cards from Milan players, made them look uh, like They could not handle him, and you have to believe the instruction was don't get embarrassed, don't make an obvious mistake, don't dive in, and des- concede a penalty. Uh, and I feel like McKenzie, for his part, had to have been told, keep the ball, don't give it away cheaply, we've done that too much, we need you to help with possession, we need you to help with stability, and for him to give the ball away twice and look sort of uncertain at times definitely, I think, ha- had him in the negative column for me, but again... Many players in that negative column. Uh, Joe, did you have Sam Vines in the negative, the positive, or the neutral column?
3: I have him in the neutral column, and and maybe mm-hmm. I need to go back through and watch Sam Vines more. He just didn't do stuff in the first half. He didn't have many chances to, to actually be on the ball and contribute. He either wasn't getting the ball, or in the few moments he did, I, he wasn't exactly turning the ball over left and right. He did have some, but he had some more conservative passes. Then in the second half, we see him flying up a little bit more, and that's a purposeful change from Greg Berhalter. I thought he was he was fine. He didn't lock down that job, and I thought on the whole he wasn't the worst U.S. player on the field, but he, he wasn't great either. Taylor or Graham, did you guys see anything else from Sam Bynes or, or any of the other
2: maybe wide yeah. players? We haven't talked about that much at all at this point. So I, th- I thought his positioning was better after halftime, but it's difficult to know how much of that was down to him and how much was down to Berhalter actually pushing him further up the left side. Um, at times I wanted them You kind of referenced it there, Joe, by saying he played quite a few conservative passes. I wanted him to be bolder with his, with his decision-making. There were There were opportunities where he had options ahead of him and he played a backwards pass instead. And when the US was kind of struggling for ball progression anyway... You kind of need that ball progression from your, um, or you need your final ball from your your wide options if that's your only place where you are progressing the ball, which is well, that was the case for periods in this match. And so I wanted them to play with a little bit more confidence. But I I would probably have them in the neutral neutral column as well. I think if if um, Scally plays the next game and he plays poorly, then Vines probably locks down that spot, whether he's done that convincingly on the back of a what a 6 at 10 performance at most yeah i don't know whether that's ideal but he he was okay he's another one that it felt like the
1: team didn't necessarily help him i don't think he helped himself and i remember a few if not giveaways, then very risky passes that did not need to be risky passes until he just mishit them. But it also reminded me of a player who basically doesn't have confidence in his teammates to keep the ball. So if you are a defender who needs to track runs and make sure you're in good defensive position – if you don't have faith in your teammates to hold that ball as you go bombing up the pitch, you're not going to go bombing up the pitch because if you go and make that 40-yard run and the ball doesn't come and then if, instead of even a ball attempt being attempted that crossfield pass, ball is coughed up in your own half, now you're very much out of position. And I and I do wonder how much of that was Burhalter saying stay defensive, be a little bit more conservative in that first half. I'm sure there was some of that, but I also think part of it was we're not getting anything going. I'm not going to like like haul myself forward to then have to haul myself back over and over and over again. We'll see if it is Scally, if he, if he takes a different approach uh, in that first half, uh, if he starts against Saudi Arabia, I expect we see him. I don't know if we will see Reggie Cannon start at right ah. back. I don't know if it will be Sergio Dest either. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I like, I feel like we've seen plenty of Serginho Dest at right back. I would love to see more of him. And I don't think he had a particularly strong game. I feel like he was pretty anonymous on the whole, but I thought Anonymous was better than what Reggie Cannon offered, which was not much defensively yep. and not much on the ball. Either, Joe, uh, agree or disagree on Reggie Cannon.
3: Agree, but almost, you know those those polls where you have neutral in the middle, strongly agree all the way on one yeah. side, and then just sort of, sort of agree in the middle? I want to take this like to a more extreme take. I thought Reggie Cannon was bad, like like really yep. bad in this game. He played a useful role, and I think this is where it, I almost found myself getting confused after watching this game the first time. He played a useful role, but he was not good in that role, at least to my right. eyes. So adding the third center back, I thought was the right call from Greg Berhalter. Now, I don't know that the U.S. was actually all that much better in the second half. I kind of think Japan just eased off the gas and let the U.S. pass the ball around a little bit, and we saw a ping, 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 and we're thinking, oh, the U.S. is playing better. But they didn't actually create anything. And so that that's a problem. Cannon was playing a useful role. And he did help the U.S. build and possess a little bit. And so that was a, a, an improvement, at least to a degree. But man, he was sloppy on the ball, I thought. He let Kamara get on his right foot for a shot in the in the 65th minute. He gets beaten in the 87th minute after stepping up to the high press. And then on the goal, it is... It's, it's again, it's bad from Reggie Cannon. The US mm-hmm. is stretched. Japan attacks down the US's right side, their left side. And, and as the press gets beaten, Cannon gets turned over almost like, almost like a cornerback trying to cover a wide receiver and just getting his footwork all wrong. He gets turned and maybe he thinks Adams has him covered. And so that's why he, he manipulates his feet the way he does. So maybe part of this blame is on Adams here. I, I think that's probably, uh, that's probably true. But Cannon does not cover himself in glory on that defensive play. So that's the the icing goal for Japan. Or multiple other moments in the second half that he's on the field. I I thought he was exposed. I I think this level, to be honest, might just be a little bit above Reggie Cannon right now. And he can be maybe a useful squad player for the U.S., But it is troubling to see the guy that you're counting on in some ways to provide that sort of tactical flexibility from one shape to the other, even a mid-game switcher, even from the start of the match. It was troubling to see that almost a linchpin of that tactical approach get exposed in the way that Reggie Cannon was, despite only being on the field for 45 minutes.
1: Yeah, Reggie Cannon is one that I have, I think, been like pretty on the positive side of I've wanted him involved in the team. I think a lot of that has to do with like chemistry. I feel like all of his interviews tend to be very positive. He seems like a good locker room guy. And I've liked at times when we see him do that right center back role, I think it's worked broadly speaking when he's done it it did not today and he was definitely exposed and you're right maybe he's supposed to have that central cover but to me it also looks like for the uh, for the second goal that he just thinks matome is left-footed and he's like basically shading him yeah, exactly. to force him like onto his right foot which is exactly what he wants and it, the his positioning didn't make a lot of sense it reminded me very much of the anchor man I'm flying through the air right now sort of face of like not being quite sure where he was in relation to the goal, not being quite sure if he's actually killing an angle or shutting yeah. the attacker down. And in the end, the ball in the back of the net. And I think this was another case of a player who came on and could have made that impact, could have really helped their case. And I think if anything, made me feel like like put it this way. When we were talking about building a World Cup roster previously, I was just automatically it's Dest, it's Cannon and it's Yedlin. Cannon can be the center back. He can give you the depth option. He can still do some of the attacking stuff. Uh, Yedlin can do the same, certainly getting forward, and then is also a locker room guy. At this point, I feel like maybe maybe we don't need Reggie Cannon. Maybe that roster spot could be used by, say, Jordan who could come in and, and just provide a little bit of a, f- <laughs> a physical difference. We don't need to talk about Peefock, though. I think we've talked plenty about Reggie Cannon. Uh, I think we've talked a, an appropriate amount about Sergio Dest, who was uh, fine but not great, or not even good, I would say. It was kind of representative of the overall experience. I want to stick with Weston McKinney for a moment. And I think part of this is because I've been so positive about him in the face of. I think it's been maybe a source of of conversation everywhere. But when I hang out with people who cover the U.S. like as their full time job when they are on the road, it, it is a sort of whispered thing of Weston McKinney might not be as good in the midfield as people want to believe And this was genuinely one of the first times I've ever sat there and watched him and thought, he is not helping this midfield. If anything, he is making it worse. And I love Weston McKinney. I think he could be a future captain for this team. I think he has to mature and learn how to take on a more veteran presence in that midfield. It can't just be about good vibes and positivity and bringing high energy. I think you have to bring the performance with it. And I and I think he can go the more like disciplined Michael Bradley route. He can go the more Jermaine Jones, frenetic energy, creating chaos, but being that X factor you might need. But I think he can't split the difference and he can't just be a neutral entity in that midfield. And if we had more friendlies, I would advocate he sit the next game and it be just a reminder, as you have to do sometimes in professional football, there's other players who can take your spot if you start to rest on your laurels. If you're not up for every single game, there's another player there who can do that. I think if we had Yunus Musa, you could try a midfield of Adams, Musa, and uh, Luca De La Torre. I wouldn't hate a midfield that had Giorena in it because I felt like he is a player who, when he did uh, move more centrally, when that was possible in the game, I thought he helped create. I thought he had the technical ability to play out of pressure and and keep the ball moving. So. I I think Weston McKinney was a big worrying sign for me, Uh, maybe because I've been so positive on him in the past. Graham, uh, I hear you making noises. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Weston McKinney.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think this was a bad matchup for Weston McKinney. When I look at Weston McKinney's game and what his profile is as a player... Um, he's not someone. So the US today needed, they needed a foot on the ball, right? And that's why they end up dropping someone a little bit deeper into that, that double pivot midfield because the single pivot was just getting overwhelmed. I don't think McKinney is great at controlling game. If you look at some of his, his statistics, you know, he's in, um, I know Joe likes his FB ref. So some of it, uh, McKinney's FB ref numbers, he's in the, the 16th percentile for progressive passes. He's in the 14th percentile for passes attempted. I've always thought of McKinney, if I was to compare him to another midfielder who was also misunderstood for a large portion of his of his career, I see a bit of Paul Pogba in Wesson McKinney, where actually he the, the best part of his game is, is in the attacking sense where you want him to get on the end of chances rather than being the guy who is conducting attacks. You want him on the end of crosses. Obviously we know he's 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 an aerial threat. Although bizarrely the US today were were pretty weak from the set pieces that they they did have. In this game, that's another bit, of, another uh, concern ahead of the World Cup. But I think you want him, McKennie, on the end of chances. I think you want him crashing the box. And some of his numbers, you know, he's in the ninety fifth percentile for touches in the, in the attacking penalty area. He's in the ninety eighth percentile for progressive passes uh, received, which again just backs up this theory that I've got that he is he's a, he's an attacker as much as he is a midfielder. That wasn't really the order of the day. Today, but I think once you get Musa back in this, in this midfield, obviously we know that nothing that happened today changes my mind on that midfield three being a lock for the US. If everyone is fit for the World Cup, that midfield, the, the, uh, MMA midfield, I think that is the best unit because you can drop Musa a little bit deeper. You can have Adams as the protective barrier, someone who starts moves from deep. You can have Musa as the ball carrier. and then you've got, um, McKenney as, as the attack minded of, the most attack minded of the three but today wasn't a good it was a good it was a bad matchup for him today mm-hmm.
3: and and part of the blame for McKenney being in those spots i think should go on greg barother part of this and we haven't really dived into this at this point the players played poorly and yes i think a lot of the blame should go towards them and part of this also is Baralther putting players in some tough spots, right? You think about Weston McKinney, like we've been saying, he's not a guy you want to be trying to lead you through a congested midfield press. He's someone you want to be sort of waiting higher up the field. We could have seen De La Torre drop back into a double pivot with Tyler Adams in the first half and McKinney just stay higher, and maybe that would have helped the U.S. build through pressure more. We could have seen them play more direct, which certainly fits the skill sets of Matt Turner, Walker Zimmerman, and Aaron Long, and also fits Weston McKinney, and, and Luca De La Torre fits into that as well. He can do that job, and it certainly fits Tyler Adams and Maybe you get more touches. The problem is maybe Jesus Serrera is the one that's sort of looking on the side, figuring out where he fits into all of that. I don't think Berhalter set the U.S. up maybe optimally in this game. I still think the players could have done a whole lot better inside the structure and very much could have put a foot on the ball and performed better playing through the press in this match. But Weston McKenney and his usage in this game is a good example of, of how the U.S. probably wasn't optimized to go out there and really take effect against Japan. So we've talked about some negative
1: performances, including the manager. Uh, before we go, let's spend a little time on some of the positives and then let's look ahead to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Joe, w- were there any players that you thought did come away from this uh, with maybe a bit more positivity about them? I'm going to assume this is where we talk about Matt Turner.
3: Matthew Ulysses Turner. I don't know if Ulysses is his middle name. I, it feels right, though, doesn't it? It kind of feels <laughs> really right. I feel does. like it feels right. I feel
1: like we've done this before, and I kind of believed you there, too. I believe you again. I hope that it is just feels like what like it, it, it feels
3: is. like Matt Turner's middle name is the name of some 19th century U.S. president. I don't know which one, but at least one of them. It's got to be. Either way. Charles Turner. Is it really?
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean that's not as good there, as there's there's the king named be. Charles now so that counts it's The
3: king of England <laughs> there you go. It's not All the UK. same it's not same the same thing. either way either way Matt Turner was good in this game and I think everybody can see that he had huge save after huge save in this game he had a, a one in the 12th in the 13th minute excuse me another good save in the 55th and the 65th there was several really good moments from Matt Turner in goal in this match according to Paul Carr Japan had 3.1 expected goals on target. That means that they you know based off of where the ball was going to land on the goal mouth that they could be expected over you know a large larger sample size but they could be expected to score more goals certainly than they did in this game. Matt Turner, only allowing two goals, saved the U.S. 1.1 goals based on that metric. Again, you want to use those over a larger sample size. But it, it confirms what we all saw in this game, that Matt Turner made some big saves. He is the number one. He has to be the number one at this point. There is just nothing that, I, that could convince me that Turner isn't the guy. I think Berlter is probably in that camp as well when he sees Turner bail the U.S. out over and over in this game. I thought Matt Turner was really good, and this game probably did more to raise his stock than it did any other active player in this match, for the U.S. at least. Yep, no arguments from me
1: on that one, Uh, and I think we should, as always, give credit to the Richmond Kickers, because I'm assuming those 27 references he made for the Kickers were the difference maker in his career. Uh, Graham, (laughs) Richmond Kickers praise
2: aside, uh, any positive players for you? Okay, so I'm going to throw a curveball here, right? Can I make an argument for Jordan Morris? Right. Let me explain. Okay. So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I know I'm aware. I'm fully aware of what I'm doing here. Um I think if you're picking the best American attackers, Morris is is quite far down the depth chart. And I'm not even sure that when, he, and when he comes off the bench in the second half that he played all that well. Right. So I know that's a strange way to start this argument, but what I saw here was that he has value in terms of the, his, the, the balance of the team. Um, Joe you said earlier like you, you didn't think maybe the second half performance was all that much better I wouldn't disagree with that much it wasn't amazing but I did think it was it, it, there was more control in that US performance and one of the reasons for that was the, the Japanese back line just stepped off the US and I think one of the main reasons they did that was all of a sudden you have Jordan Morris trying to get in behind with his, with his movement there's vertical threat on that side and so yes Japan allowed the US to play more in that second half but I think that was down to the profile of player that the US were able to put on in the second half and as I've said earlier in the show I think you need that vertical threat especially if Jesus Fred is going to be the number nine I didn't like that that starting front three because they didn't offer that so yes ideally you have Christian Pulisic and Timothy Weah to provide that vertical threat but Pulisic sets out, out this game through injury And his injury record is uh, pretty patchy at this point, to say the least. Timothy Weah hasn't played this season due to injury. So I don't know whether you can count on him at this point for the World Cup. And I look at the rest of the pool and I'm not really sure who you can use for that vertical threat beyond Jordan Morris. So I saw something today in terms of Hmm. Brouter always makes this point, or he alludes to this point at least, you're not picking necessarily the best players, the best American players. You're trying to build a team. And I think there is an argument that Jordan Morris, he certainly has a case. If you're building a team and looking at the balance of the attack, he gives you something. And that kind of that kind of hit home to me in that second half, even though individually he wasn't all that good. Does that make any sense? It does. Could that also be Paul Arriola, and the reason why we continue to see him involved? Perhaps, yes. But I I look at Arreola and I would use him for a... a, I look at his work rate off the ball and I think that is maybe his greatest attribute, whereas I think Morris maybe gives you more of that vertical threat. Uh,
1: Small Dog is in the room with me as I'm recording and she just audibly groaned, which tells me that she has decided we're getting close to needing to bring this one to a close. Uh, But I wanted to talk about one more attacker uh, who came in and didn't quite have the impact maybe we would have liked. But Joe, what did you make of Josh Sargent in this game?
3: I thought he was fine to good. I don't think he was great. He didn't change the game completely for the U.S., but I thought he fit how the U.S. needed to play in this game much better than Jesus Ferreira. After the first half where you realize, okay, we're not really doing all that well building through pressure, and that should have been a very early realization for the U.S., Josh Sargent comes in and he actually does try to provide a little bit of that vertical threat that Graham's been talking about. He does make a couple of runs in behind. He does help the U.S. advance. He has a nice moment where he helps the U.S. play forward after a nice ball forward from Walker Zimmerman in the 51st minute. Then he has a good run in behind in the 55th minute to get the U.S. into the final third, which was a rare occasion in this game. The U.S. actually getting into the final third or getting into the box. Josh Sargent, I thought, was more direct. He was a little more forceful. And and I think he did relatively well for himself, given that everything else was falling all around him. I would really enjoy seeing Josh Sargent start on Tuesday. I don't still have a a massive interest in seeing Ricardo Pepe. I'd be fine if we saw him. I think Sargent is just a better player right now than Ricardo Pepe. And they're similar enough that I would like to see more of Josh Sargent to see if he can ride maybe just a little bit of momentum from this game into
2: Tuesday. I like the industry from Sargent when he comes off the bench. There's a a chance where, is it Brendan Aronson who has like a right-footed shot, the US kind of forced... That that was one of the few times actually when you saw the high press from the US on Japan. They force a turnover about maybe 30 yards, 25 yards out from the Japanese goal. And Sargent, I think if my memory serves me right, was involved in, in that little sequence and then Aronson has the, the shot. So I, I like, sometimes with Sargent, it's a little bit rough and ready, but sometimes you need that quality. So I, I did like that from him. So Joe wants to see him against Saudi Arabia. Graham,
1: any other players uh, or tactics or approaches or physicality or whatever it may be
2: that you would like to see against Saudi Arabia? I would agree with George Sargent. I want to see him start that game. Um, the other one, which won't come as any surprise because reading between the lines, Berhalter has already kind of admitted it's going to happen. I want to see Joe Scali at, at left back so we can evaluate those two options. Um, in terms of tactical principles, or not so much tactical principles, but just principles of the, the approach, I think the US have to be sharper on the ball against Saudi Arabia. They won't face the same level of pressing in that match, but nonetheless, this, this was a loose performance, a possession game, sorry, by, uh, by the US. And I want to see better balance to the attack from the start. I've, I've already made my case with the, the Reyna, Ferreira, Aronson front line. Um, so I want to see a greater appreciation from Beralter on that. Maybe Pilsic is back for that game and, and he solves that problem, but I think Beralter needs to be more mindful of that. And then the midfield has to be stronger. Um, and the single pivot thing just gave, Japan far too much opportunity to get close to Adams, so I think they need to be um, sorry, McKenney and Delatore and whoever is playing in that midfield, assuming that it's Adams as the single pivot. They they need to be more mindful of creating angles for for the passes, um, because it wasn't just sloppy from the US on the ball; it was it was lazy off the ball, particularly in that first half as well. So. Those are some things, generally, you could kind of group all those things and say, like, just greater intensity and sharpness and tempo. Um, That's the sort of things I want to see.
3: And Joe, for you? I want to see cleaner play. Certainly, Graham's kind of getting at that. I also want to see the U.S. look like they come out there and have a more cohesive approach. Tyler Adams talked about it after the game. They had had an approach coming into this game, and according to Adams, they sort of drifted away from that, and I think we saw that as the first half unfolded. I want to see the U.S. break forward and actually create chances. That means being better on the ball, but also, you know, if, if it makes sense to go long, go long, right? Have numbers around the ball, win the second balls in midfield. This is, the U.S. can play better than they played in this game. We've seen them play better before with relatively similar lineups, right? We know they can. We've seen them play good games even against teams that are, are in Japan stratosphere, which, again, to be clear, is not a top-tier team in the world, but they are a very good team, and they outplayed the U.S. today. We know the U.S. can play better than this. It's not unattainable. The timing of this performance is really bad, right? With only 90 minutes before the World Cup. This is not when you want to be having some of these issues surface. But, man, this stuff is fixable, right? These issues are fixable. We talked about that already. A little bit cleaner on the ball, cleaner in possession, having a better understanding of when to go long and when not to. They're fixable stuff. The question is, will they be fixed? And I I would love to see them get fixed by Tuesday. The pressure is very much on, though, for this team. If they're not...
2: Now we're we're talking about some major issues heading into Qatar. Yeah, that that's the biggest knock-on effect for me. In in isolation, this game, this sort of performance can happen, right? But it does put quite a bit of pressure on that on on Tuesday's game. The US need to play well because I, th- I know Saudi Arabia actually qualified ahead of Japan in Asian World Cup qualifying, but. they are an an inferior team compared to japan so the u.s should have a better opportunity it's a better matchup for them they should just on a talent basis they should have the opportunity to impose their own game more effectively and if they don't that's maybe where i'm not saying we're entering panic but not far off panic at that point if the same issues arise on tuesday informed
1: concern that's how we're going to phrase it instead of panic how about that yeah, that works. <laughs> all right. Well, good rebranding job. Though. I do my best. I try. Well, we will be back to, uh, review that entire game for sure on Tuesday. I think we may, uh, as a, as some lighter fare, have a, a full episode of Wikipedia game on Monday. So I've got my researching yeah. ahead of me. That'll be my entire weekend just spent researching Wikipedia game. I hope you all are prepared. Uh, any other thoughts on this one before we call it reviewed, Joe or Graham?
3: Uh, Only come to our live show. We're doing a live show in New York on November 20th. It's going to be 8 p.m. Eastern. The ticket link, Taylor, can you put that in the the show notes? We had that in some of the other show notes earlier this week. It's on Twitter as well. Come buy tickets. We'll make sure you have easy access to that link. It's going to be a ton of fun. We would love to see as many of you there as possible.
2: Yeah, and thanks to everyone who has already bought tickets, they are moving uh, very quickly, and that is much appreciated, and that just builds the excitement. I think we're all very excited and and can't really wait to to just be there. What is it, 55 days or something like that? It's not long at all. Joe said
1: 90 minutes, and it made my heart skip a beat. I'm not going to lie. He is technically correct 90 minutes, and then the U.S. plays in the World Cup, but it reminds me of... Christmas Eve when I as a kid had to be like I know it's 10 hours from now and I'm going to be asleep for most of that but still that's so long away <laughs> 90 minutes and then the World Cup starts does not feel long enough away at all so uh, I hope that game against Saudi Arabia goes better I hope the U.S. is up for it I hope they are able to unlock that defense score some goals and make everybody breathe just a little bit easier uh, we will be back as I said to review that game for now Graham Ruthven thank you for taking the time to review this one with us today Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. And Joe Lowry, thank you for setting. I'm going to assume multiple alarms, waking up early, watching that game, rewatching that game, and then breaking it all down with us today. You got it, Taylor. And listeners, thank you again for joining us. We'll talk to you all again next week.